And it's my honor to introduce to the country a daughter of former public school teachers, a proven consensus builder, an accomplished lawyer, a distinguished jurist, one of the nation's most, on one of the nation's most prestigious courts. My nominee for the United States Supreme Court is Judge Ketanji Jackson. Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Now, if you think we're entering your podcast feed on a different day, you're you're not wrong. Uh, this is a special episode we have, right, Jimmy? That's right, Natalie. You've likely all heard the news that President Biden nominated D.C. Circuit Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to fill Justice Stephen Breyer's seat on the Supreme Court on Friday. Uh, She's the first African-American woman and former federal public defender named to the nation's top court in its 232-year history, and she accepted the nomination in a ceremony at the White House on Friday. Thank you very much, Mr. President. I am truly humbled by the extraordinary honor of this nomination, and I am especially grateful for the care that you have taken in discharging your constitutional duty in service of our democracy with all that is going on in the world today. Friday's nomination of Judge Jackson came as no surprise for many court watchers. She had long been rumored as the frontrunner for his short list of candidates. Um, She was even rumored as a candidate back in 2016 during the Obama administration as a possible replacement for Justice Antonin Scalia. That's right. But instead, she's poised to take the seat of her old boss, uh, Justice Breyer, for whom she clerked. And if confirmed, she'd be the 104th Associate Justice of the Supreme Court and would actually create the largest number of women justices to serve simultaneously on the bench. So there's only ever been as many as three women to serve together. This would Her confirmation would bring that number to four, still quite a bit short of uh, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg aspiration of nine women justices on the court, of course. But definitely a a more, I think, representative of the U.S. demographic uh, bench, basically. So, yeah, we're going to spend today, though, just taking a deep dive into her life and career. She's a 51-year-old federal appeals court judge. She has, you know, had a lifetime of breaking glass barriers, being the first in many ways um, throughout her career and, and we're going to do this in a way that kind of says it in her words, because, you know, thanks to technology and the growing uh, number of recorded panels and audio from courtrooms, we actually have a lot of clips from her, her career and from her talking about her life. That's right. She's described her, you know, varied legal career as kind of being a professional vagabond of sorts. Um, she spent time, as you say, as a federal public defender, a big law partner, a member of the U.S. Sentencing Commission, and, of course, a judge on the on the federal bench, um, in which she's seen a number of high-profile cases over the years involving things like showdowns between the White House and Congress and prominent criminal matters and, 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 a, and a lot more in between. Um, you know, uh, speaking of her rumored uh, front-runner status to replace uh, the late Justice Antonin Scalia back during the Obama administration. I remember around that time sitting in on one of her district court cases, just kind of keeping an eye on her as someone who might potentially be floated one day for the Supreme Court. 
And it, I was basically the only reporter in, in a courtroom in which she was, uh, you know, she was deliberating over a complex matter of civil litigation. I believe it was a matter of um, pharmaceutical companies um, uh, challenging each other's generic drug applications. And, you know, the, the law there gets pretty complex. And, and, and she was holding forth in, in really analyzing and, you know, kind of questioning the attorneys on both sides just to, just to really get the law right. And um, that's what we've seen in her opinions over the years. These are very thorough documents, sometimes stretching over well over 100 pages. And, and we'll talk about this a little bit more. But before we get to, uh, you know, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, the lawyer and jurist in Washington, I think it's worth just taking a look at how she got here, how she became um, the first African-American female Supreme Court nominee in history. Agreed. So let's just kind of give some basic stats. She was born Katanji Onyeka Brown in Washington, D.C. in 1970 to two public school teachers. And she moved to Miami as a young child, where she, and that's where she spent you know, many of her formative years. While her father was in law school, um, the family lived in housing designated for married students, and she spoke about the influence of watching her father pursue his law degree at the White House on Friday. It was my father who started me on this path when I was a child, as uh, the president mentioned. My father made the fateful decision to, trans, uh, to transition from his job as a public high school history teacher and go to law school. Some of my earliest memories are of him sitting at the kitchen table, reading his law books. I watched him study, and he became my first professional role model. Now, her father would go on to use his law degree as an attorney for the Miami-Dade County School Board, and her mother was a principal at a suburban arts magnet school. Education, as we'll repeatedly, I think, uh, talk about here, was a big thing in her household. But, you know, in the weeks leading up to her nomination, there was some interesting reporting that surfaced about some of her other lesser-known family history, and that is, you know, while she was a young adult, a, a distant uncle named Thomas Brown ended up being sentenced to life in prison for drug charges under a three-strikes law. Now, according to a report in the Post, uh, Brown reached out to Jackson when she was later on a federal public defender to get him out of prison. So she refers the case to a law firm, which takes his case up pro bono, and President Barack Obama later ends up commuting his sentence. So it's a really interesting kind of family um, connection to the, the the world of criminal justice that she would later inhabit as a lawyer and eventually as a judge. And, and Judge Jackson kind of acknowledges this at the White House on Friday and speaks to some other aspects of her family history as well. You may have read that I have one uncle who got caught up in the drug trade and received a life sentence, that is true. But law enforcement also runs in my family. In addition to my brother, I had two uncles who served decades as police officers, one of whom became the police chief in my hometown of Miami, Florida. And speaking of that hometown uh, in Miami, Florida that she was just speaking about, um, you know, it was a largely Jewish suburb of Miami where she grew up. Uh, she she kind of grew up attending her friend's bar and bat mitzvahs. She went on to become the class president of her large public high school, Miami Palmetto High, uh, high School, in the late 1980s. Um, and there she participated in the speech and debate club. Sometimes called forensics. And that was an experience that I can say without hesitation 
was the one activity that best prepared me for future success in law and in life. Under the tutelage of an extraordinary woman named Fran Berger, who was my coach and my mentor, I learned how to reason and how to write, and I gained the self-confidence that can sometimes be quite difficult for women and minorities to develop at an early age. I have no doubt that of all of the various things that I've done, it was my high school experience a, as a competitive speaker that taught me how to lean in despite the obstacles, to stand firm in the face of challenges, to work hard, to be resilient, to strive for excellence, and to believe that anything is possible. Now, it was while traveling with her debate team that she first visited the Harvard campus. And when she saw it, she wanted to go to college there. Her guidance counselor reportedly told her not to set her sights so high, but Judge Jackson did not listen and was accepted and went on to graduate magna cum laude. And it was unquestionably the right place for me. I had fabulous friends, took challenging courses, and participated in a wide range of interesting extracurricular activities, including drama and musical theater, during which I made several notable connections, the most prominent of which I suppose is Matt Damon, who was assigned to be my scene partner during a drama course we took one semester. As a side note, although I was pretty good, I doubt he'd remember me now. I don't know about you, Natalie, but that is a great fun fact. If ever, you know, you need to break the ice at a party or whatever. Oh, I was Matt Damon's uh, scene partner (laughs) at college. Of course, she did more than just share the stage with Jason Bourne during her college years. In what I think of as kind of a harbinger of her later career as vice chair of the U.S. Sentencing Commission, her senior thesis, now remember this is as an undergraduate at Harvard, was titled The Hand of Oppression, plea bargaining processes in the coercion of criminal defendants. So you can already tell that this is someone who is probably destined to go to law school. But in any event, she she spends a kind of a short stint after um, graduating from college on the staff of Time Magazine, where she was a researcher and uh, reporter. But her career in journalism was short-lived, and she returned um, to Harvard to go to law school, um, and she, where she served as an editor on the Harvard Law Review. After graduating, she landed three federal clerkships, uh, one for a Massachusetts federal district judge, then for a First Circuit judge, and during the October 1999 term, fatefully, for Justice Stephen Breyer on the Supreme Court. At an event in 2020, actually an event that included Justice Breyer, uh, Jackson spoke about what it was like to obtain such a prestigious position. As a black woman lawyer, I have often experienced being the first in various workplace and professional settings. Uh, So one of the things that I appreciated the most when I interviewed for the Justice Breyer clerkship was realizing that I would not be the first black woman uh, that he had ever hired as a law clerk and that he was truly committed to um, seeking out diverse and talented assistance. It's opened doors of opportunities uh, that my forebearers uh, up to and including my grandparents uh, would not have even dared to dream of. And after clerking at the Supreme Court, it was time, according to Jackson, to kind of be on the give side of the give and take of, you know, being a newlywed. So instead of launching her legal career in D.C., she moved with her husband, um, whom she met at Harvard, to Boston, where she was completing his residency in surgery and joined a big law firm, Goodwin & Proctor, as an associate. 
Jackson was three months pregnant at the time and found it difficult to balance life and work at a major law firm. And so for me began the delicate balancing that so many young lawyers face in their professional lives. How does one manage the demands of your career and also the needs of your family? When we returned to the Boston area, I took a position as a general litigation associate in a very large law firm, Goodwin Proctor. And like many young women who enter big law, I soon found it extremely challenging to combine law firm work with my life as a wife and a mother. Talia was born a few months after I started working at Goodwin, and the firm was very supportive, but I don't think it is possible to overstate the degree of difficulty that many young women, and especially new mothers, face in the law firm context. The hours are long, the workflow is unpredictable, you have little control over your time and your schedule, and you start to feel as though the demands of the billable hour are constantly in conflict with the needs of your children and your family responsibilities. I feel like what she's saying here is, is something I've heard just over and over um, about the big law lifestyle and, and why it so often you know, ends up losing working mothers and working parents. Um, you know, I, I think Jimmy is kind of crazy to think that, you know, she, she, she felt she had to leave the big law lifestyle and, and, and here she is now, now nominated to potentially become a Supreme Court justice. It, it's it's kind of crazy to think, you know, just the, the, the paths that, that can wind uh, your legal career here. Yeah, it does seem fascinating that, you know, developing the resume to become a potential Supreme Court justice is more accommodating um, to a working mother than working at one of these major law firms. So it tells you quite a lot about what that lifestyle is like. But in any event, um, after Goodwin, uh, she returned to Washington, D.C. as an associate for another firm before joining the U.S. Sentencing Commission as an assistant counsel. So this is the kind of obscure yet very important independent federal agency that sets guidelines for the length of prison sentences for federal crimes. She was appointed uh, by Obama to become the commission's vice chair later on, honing her policy chops and working on a variety of criminal justice reform measures from 2010 to 2014. So just to drill down on kind of some of the issues that she talked about, in 2011, the agency was grappling with the sentencing reforms in the previous year's Fair Sentencing Act. This is a law that was meant to reduce the historic disparity between crack and powder cocaine sentences by lowering sentences for crack. But Congress did not explicitly make um, parts of the law retroactive. So when she was serving as vice chair of the commission, this is a this is a role that required Senate confirmation, the first Senate confirmation that she actually received, Jackson and other members voted unanimously to amend the guidelines to make them retroactive, giving potentially thousands of people then in prison for those drug offenses the opportunity to seek immediate release. So here's Jackson at a 2011 hearing of the U.S. Sentencing Commission as they debated this measure. The decision we make today, which comes more than 16 years after the commission's first report to Congress on crack, crack cocaine reminds me in many respects of an oft-quoted statement from the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Today, 
the commission completes the arc that began with its first recognition of the inherent unfairness of the 100 to 1 crack powder disparity all those years ago. I say, justice demands this result. In between her roles at the commission as assistant counsel and then later on vice chair, Jackson spent two formative years in the Federal Public Defender's Office in Washington, D.C. It was actually in that role that she gained what I consider to be the bulk of her oral argument experience, especially as an appellate advocate. So there she argued around 10 appeals in the D.C. Circuit during that time, and she represented a number of indigent defendants in things like federal habeas proceedings and criminal appeals, but she also represented a Guantanamo Bay detainee seeking review of his status as an enemy combatant. So there's kind of a variety of of matters that she worked on during this short stint um, in the mid-2000s. Now, her career took another turn when, in July 2012, Jackson met with White House and DOJ officials for a possible seat on the federal district court in Washington. Ultimately, she was chosen as a replacement for retiring Judge Henry Kennedy Jr. Nominated in September and confirmed the following March, Jackson would later recall being thrust into the deep end when it came to the court's cases. And so I had a very... Um, I don't know if it was unfortunate uh, circumstance because I was away at the time of my confirmation. It was over spring break and I was in Florida and I came back and, you know, obviously very excited. I said to uh, the chief judge, not this chief judge, but the former one, um, I want to come in and just, you know, sort of talk to you and uh, see what's happening. And when I got to the court, I ran into one of the clerks who said, oh, you must be the new judge. Do you know that there are 150 cases already lined up for you? (laughs) And I said, what? (laughs) And so I ended up actually coming on quicker than I had anticipated because I was worried that things were happening in my cases that were not being attended. So it's on the D.C. federal district bench that Jackson has accumulated kind of the bulk of her judicial experience and left the majority of her track record. She spent eight and a half years there um, hearing hundreds of cases and issuing a total of 562 decisions. She also presided over 12 trials during that time. So among these various cases were some of the most high-profile legal stories of the day. So um, one of which, probably known to listeners, is a decision in favor of the House Judiciary Committee in its lawsuit seeking to compel the testimony of former White House counsel Don McGahn about possible obstruction of justice by former President Donald Trump during the special counsel's investigation. She writes, stated simply, the primary takeaway from the past 250 years of recorded American history is that presidents are not kings. Now, the ruling would later be reversed on appeal, which in turn was vacated by an en banc panel of the D.C. Circuit. So it kind of went up and down and ping-ponged around. But ultimately, um, the reversal of Jackson, Ju- Judge Jackson's ruling was vacated. In another case that she would later list as one of the most significant decisions on her Senate questionnaire, she listed the Pizzagate shooter Edgar Madison Welsh's sentencing to prison in four years in 2017. So Welsh made national headlines, as I'm sure listeners know, in 2016 when he drove 360 miles from his home in North Carolina 
to a beloved neighborhood pizza restaurant in Northwest Washington, D.C. called Comet Ping Pong. I've been to it. It's delicious. Um, it was kind of very heartbreaking to see what had happened to it. But in any event, Welsh had driven there to investigate a fake internet conspiracy about a secret child exploitation ring. He fired multiple shots from his AR-15 rifle inside the restaurant before ultimately surrendering, surrendering to police. Thankfully, no one was injured. Um, and in uh, during the sentencing of Welsh at a hearing, uh, Judge Jackson says, quote, I believe that you thought you were being helpful in doing the right thing. You weren't some robber who burst into the restaurant looking for money or trying to benefit yourself personally. I know that, and I've taken that into account. But the problem is that in our society, no matter how well-intentioned, people are not permitted to take matters into their own hands. Acting violently, even for good causes, is not okay. As her record continued to build, uh, Judge Jackson was once again considered a possible frontrunner for a Supreme Court seat after Biden announced on the campaign trail that he intended to nominate the first African-American woman to the Supreme Court bench. But first, she was nominated to D.C. Circuit in March 2021 in Biden's first wave of judicial selections, and she appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee in April, where she spoke about her judicial philosophy. When I get a case. If you look at my 550 cases, you'll see that there's a, a consistency in the way in which I'm analyzing the issues. Um, I'm applying a particular method as the Supreme Court has directed, which is that I'm looking only at the arguments that the parties have made, at the facts in the record of the case, and at the law as I understand it. And I'm sticking very closely to those three inputs. And I'm also applying the same amount of analytical rigor to my uh, analysis of those inputs. And as a result, I think I'm not making uh, many errors, although the DC Circuit tells me that I do occasionally. Um, but I'm doing that because I want to see every case through the same analytical lens. And it doesn't make a difference whether or not the argument is coming from a, a deaf inmate or the president of the United States. I'm not injecting my personal views. I'm looking at those three things. And I think by being very methodical, I've been able to produce opinions that the circuit can see my reasoning and they understand that I'm even-handedly applying the law in every case. Now, during the time of her confirmation hearings, Republicans were all too aware of Judge Jackson's status as a potential you know, frontrunner for a future Supreme Court seat. And that was uh, a line of questioning that you saw from various members of the committee who wanted to have Judge Jackson kind of put her thoughts on the record about some of these very explosive and divisive political questions surrounding the Supreme Court when it came to its things like its legitimacy or, you know, possible progressive court packing plans and things like that. Now, she avoided answering, no, no surprise there, um, but uh, she was ultimately confirmed in what can kind of be considered a bipartisan vote when she nabbed the approval of, you know, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Senator Susan Collins of Maine, all Republicans there. Uh, but Republicans were right in their suspicions that she would emerge from as the kind of lead candidate um, for a Supreme Court seat. She has been on the bench on the D.C. circuit for less than a year and now is has emerged as Biden's pick to replace Justice Stephen Breyer. 
That's right, Jimmy. And, you know, while it's been a a long and winding career path for Judge Jackson, this confirmation process has been really kind of at a fast clip. Um, and top Democrats want to keep it that way. And they say they want her confirmed by April 8th. Which they have a good chance of coming good on, considering now you only need, you know, a bare majority of 51 votes to confirm a Supreme Court nominee, um, which they have with uh, Vice President Harris's tie-breaking vote there. Uh, But, you know, you'll still see a lot of questions and scrutiny of Judge Jackson's judicial uh, record and views, which I should say are, are still really coming into view. So as a district and circuit court judge, she was obviously bound by the precedent of the Supreme Court and the D.C. Circuit. Um, in contrast, Supreme Court justices have a lot more leeway in shaping the direction of the court's precedents. And therefore, you know, there will be a lot of attention paid to things like her views on the Constitution and statutory interpretation and other contentious issues like abortion, affirmative action, and all the other things you see come up during a Senate confirmation hearing for a Supreme Court justice. But actually, interestingly, in a kind of an unscripted moment uh, during an event in 2015, Judge Jackson then, you know, pretty new into her career on the federal bench as a district judge, she was asked about what kind of judge she'd like to be remembered as in 20 years. And here's what she had to say. I think that I would like to be remembered as a judge who was both careful and thorough in my opinions. Um, I think, as I said, the writing is very important to me. Um, I feel, especially in the age of Westlaw, where people can get on the computer and pull up your opinions, that they represent me in a way. Um, and so I'm a, you know, a, a person who is sort of very organized and thorough in my thought processes, and so I like for my opinions to reflect that. Um, so I think if I could have a legacy, it would be um, sort of careful and thoughtful and thorough, uh, in my opinions. And I think with those words, this is a good place for us to, to kind of wind down here on our deep dive into the justice nominee of Judge Jackson. We'll obviously be covering this um, as it moves forward and, and we'll kind of come in with any news when it does. Um, but yeah, thanks so much, Jimmy. Thanks, Natalie. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Thunderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review.